0: The statements and views expressed on the Voices in Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices in Vulnerability, where we interview the scholars shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about the transformational potential of vulnerability theory and how it is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. I am your host, Mangala Knesen. Today, I am grateful to have Jennifer Hickey here on the show as my guest. Jennifer Hickey is a postdoctoral fellow at the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative here at Emory Law. She recently penned an op-ed for our blog called Bowling Alone in Georgia. So let's talk a little bit about that op-ed. You wrote about Robert Putnam's book Bowling Alone and its framing of bowling as an indicator of a lack of civic engagement. Um, How does this tie into ideals of civil society as an alternative to government?
1: Yeah, so I guess, you know, I I started thinking about Bowling Alone again. Um, It was an essay that Robert Putnam wrote. um, I think it did turn into a book uh, later on. But the essay was originally written in 1995. um, And in fact, it's something that we give our students to read in our Law and Vulnerability seminar. So it was kind of fresh on my mind because we had just taught it fairly recently. Uh, But essentially Putnam more or less outlined kind of what he saw as potentially a generational decline in civic engagement, um, evidenced by a lack of participation in voluntary associations. So for example, the PTA is is a large one that we tend to think of as being a civic engagement type thing, Uh, but he listed bowling leagues as well um, and kind of noted the prevalence of bowling alone, this idea that more Americans are bowling, but they're not doing it in leagues. And what does that say about our sense of community and civic engagement? Um, So with that being kind of fresh on my mind, uh, we saw recently Uh, during this pandemic, that the Georgia governor has decided to reopen, uh, which we'll talk what that means, uh, businesses in Georgia during the pandemic and, you know, in a move that was widely criticized by public health experts. Uh, And one of the businesses that he explicitly deemed essential was bowling alleys, uh, which I think was a move that seemed relatively strange to a lot of people, uh, just because I, I think maybe in some ways, culturally, bowling is not as significant, perhaps, as it was once was, uh, and and so I think just seeing bowling kind of kind of come back into the national limelight, um, and it did receive a good amount of national attention, uh, mostly in the form of parody, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, kind of inspired me to to think again about the themes of civic engagement that you know started in Putnam's work and can be seen now in in our responses to the pandemic.
0: We like to talk about choice in America, but in your essay you noted that there's this inevitable inequality in social relations in social relationships specifically in the employer employee relationship that really puts a damper on any sort of free choice to reopen their business or to go to work now that the state of Georgia has reopened. Um, can you tell me a little bit about those economic pressures that influence whether folks really have a free choice?
1: Yeah, so I guess, you know, again, kind of returning to civic engagement for a second and then, and then you know, moving on into that. Um, kind of at the heart of what I was writing about, essentially, was this idea that, you um, you know of government abdication of responsibility so essentially by declaring businesses reopen or kind of you know magically as a government leader stating oh the economy is opened again um that that is you know a gross abdication of state responsibility for its citizens um, in the name of the free market And, and a large part of that abdication i think comes from the expectation that you know civil society will take up the slack Uh, And this is something that we've seen, you know, as touted as a positive thing among those who support the idea of minimal government interference. Uh, This idea that from the, you know, bottom up, the people will pull themselves together and, you know, they will lead the country and government really only needs to step in, you know, when necessary to protect the market. Um, and I think these themes were very much in play with this, you know, announcement of reopening the economy. Um, and and we see that a lot in, you know, what you described in terms of the notion of choice, and particularly when it comes to, you know, employment right now uh, in the pandemic. And I think that, you know, a large part of this is this idea that um, we can just, the government can step off and say that the economy re- is reopened. And this basically puts all of the onus on individuals to make the decisions as to whether or not they want to frequent the businesses um, that are part of this economy and make decisions about their health and the health of the people who are forced to go back to work because of this decision. A lot of the times what we've been seeing throughout this pandemic is, you know, the small, I hope, fraction of people who are very concerned with retaining full individual choice uh, and not being told what to do by the government even in the midst of a pandemic and in a horrific public health crisis. Um, I think that what we're seeing is, you know, this just complete lack of responsibility on the government's part to just kind of set people free and say, hey, you know, Go back to work. It'll be fine. People will show up. You'll make money, you know, and then employees essentially can't necessarily get unemployment insurance anymore because they are being framed as having a choice about whether or not they return to work. But in actuality, that is far from true. Um, And same with business owners. You know, they're they're being forced essentially to open in some cases, whether they want to or not, uh, because creditors, you know, are, are basically coming in and saying you have to they're not being given any sort of support to remain closed out of respect for the pandemic and out of fear for their lives and that of their employees. So this decision is basically forcing them to operate. um, And at the same time, it's forcing individual citizens to decide, you know, whether they want to be, I guess, in a sense, socially responsible by you know, staying at home and trying to stop the spread of the disease, or do they want to, in a sense, be socially responsible by going to these businesses uh, despite their discomfort because they're worried that the employees or the business owners will starve because the government is not taking care of them? So this is the terrible choice <laughs> that I guess we've been left with by you know by the way that the government has handled the pandemic, essentially. And this choice is being kind of left in the power relations as well between employer and employee.
0: What sort of alternatives are there? So you, you wrote about how it's being framed as markets versus lives, like safe markets or save lives. Is there an alternative?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that's where a lot of the vulnerability theory principles come in as well, the idea of a, of a responsive state. I mean, certainly there's a lot of ways in which you could say that the government should have been more responsive from the beginning just in terms of, you know, actually eradicating the, the public health threat. But I think now that we're where we are, <laughs> um, you know, certainly, I guess, for lack of a better term, social safety net is the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, you know, there was a basic amount of money that was sent uh, to all of us, kind of framed as a stimulus check. Uh, But essentially it was, you know, a small amount of universal basic income and it was a small amount of stimulus um, to kind of help people to some extent navigate some of the the economic hardships of the pandemic. Uh, But certainly we could see a lot more coming from the government and especially if they're going to put people in this position where, they are not providing public health guidance either, so I think that's that is still another very large piece. Um, you know, now more than ever, when we're getting mixed messages. Um, you know, the government saying it's safe to reopen businesses, a lot of public health experts are not, and I think that a more unified and um, helpful <laughs> message would would be important from the government about that. Because again, I think at the heart of my piece is this idea that it is really unfair to put on individual citizens and civil society in general, the responsibility and the onus of, of knowing whether or not we should even leave our homes. I mean, I think most of the people that I, I personally have talked to, you know, struggle constantly with, you know, just exactly how much social distancing we should be continuing to do and what's safe and what's not. And now the economic decisions are ours as well because of, of what has happened with government just sort of thinking they can magically declare the economy open. I think what's also interesting too is we're seeing some recent data that shows that majority of Americans, a vast majority I believe, uh, think it's too soon to reopen some of these businesses. Um, so, in a sense, you know these decisions are also flying in the face of what the majority of of Americans want to see happen um, and so again, aside from the counter majoritarian actions of favoring this you know reopening of the economy, um, we're also seeing basically that this is making things even worse because you know, governments are forcing businesses to open, but they're not getting any customers because everyone wants to stay home still and is still concerned about the pandemic. So, you know, I don't know the exact contours of of a government response, but I know we need something better than that.
0: Gosh, I've been thinking about that a lot recently too. We've been my roommate and I have been having the same dilemma. Like we don't want to go there and like continually put these employees' lives in danger, but also we want them to be able to afford to live.
1: Right.
0: You know, we want to go there and like tip really well. And like, we've been doing a lot of takeout.
1: Yeah. Which is, you know, a totally viable alternative and could have continued to be like, there just was no, there's no reason to say that restaurants need to serve people in the restaurant. (laughs) You know, I mean that even just that small aspect of it to me is ludicrous, but, but yeah, no, I think, I would venture to say and I guess that's kind of at the heart of what I was trying to write about that I think I think most people are decent and are having that dilemma as well right like and that's not a decision that we should be making and I think that's that's really at the heart of of what bothers me the most is this idea that by forcing us literally to decide who lives and dies right in a sense because you're saying like you know Do I go to this business um, and possibly infect someone or get infected myself or do I not go and then, you know, the employees can't afford to put food on the table? I mean, these are literal life and death decisions. And because of the position we've been put in by the government, we have to make these and we don't have, you know, presumably hopefully we don't have the level of information that the government has about (laughs) right like you would hope right like that they they would know more and have access to more in regards to like the public health data you know I mean we're I, I you know you and I both I think we read a lot right and like I don't I don't even know where what the definitive source is to tell me what you know how bad of a public health risk this is right now you know, I feel like on a day-to-day basis, we're going through right now, we're trying to figure out if we want to bring our nanny back to work. I have no idea how to make that decision. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> and I have, I'm privileged and have access to a lot of information that not everybody has. And I still don't know, you know? So it's like clearer guidelines from the government at the very least are just necessary right now. It's, its yeah, it just angers me that that we're being forced to do this. And I guess that's kind of, to me when I said the ultimate manifestation. I mean, that's what I mean. This is, this is kind of, in some senses, the inevitable consequence of neoliberal governance, right? If you just keep pushing every, all the responsibility down on civil society and down on individual people, then this is what's going to happen. You're leaving us stranded, basically.
0: <laughs> um, what do you think the role of the government should be right now?
1: Well, again, I guess provider of of resources, right? So again, bringing vulnerability theory back into it. I mean, the government's main responsibility is providing resilience to its citizens. Um, And in this case, that is, you know, largely in the form of putting food on the table uh, for a lot of people who can't otherwise and recognizing and balancing, you know, the public safety risks. So I think um, disseminating more information, more unified information, um, I Mm -hmm. think. That's certainly where our Federalist system doesn't necessarily very helpful. <laughs> um, you know, the responses amongst the states have been so varied and different. Um, but yeah, more unified scientific information about the risks, um, but not even just information. I mean, we need more definitive action. We need provision of resources. We need a recognition that, you know our hospitals are understaffed. I mean there's just there's so much wrong (laughs) with the government's lack of response here um that it's hard to to even you know stop listing things basically but you know at bottom it is a recognition that they have the government has a responsibility for its citizens resilience and that is not something that you can put off on the free market and i feel like this pandemic is showing that (laughs) to some extent Um, hopefully that is a lesson to be learned especially like i said with the recent uh, poll data that's showing that you can't just declare the economy open and expect consumers to arrive.
0: <laughs> As we move forward during and hopefully through and past this, um, what changes do you hope to see in the way that the government responds to the needs of citizens?
1: That's a good question. I mean, I, like I said, I really hope that we take the lessons from this pandemic forward in terms of understanding just general government responsibility, you know, we don't put positive obligations on the government um, here, you know, they're not required constitutionally to provide any sort of basic goods or services for people. And I think we need a stronger recognition that that is something we should expect uh, from the government. And that is something that the government should actively be striving to provide for us rather than getting out of the way. I think, again, this idea of minimal state intervention and this idea that civil society is the proper place, you know, to do these types of things um, is, is flawed. And I think we need to recognize that on a larger scale, we have to change how we feel about governance. We have to change how we feel about the free market economy and how, how we're dealing with problems in the United States that the market is not always the solution
0: do you think we actually have a free market as in unencumbered by government regulations
1: no i mean (laughs) i i don't necessarily um i mean i think that is kind of the neoliberal philosophy is that to some extent you know regulating the market where where needed is is okay as long as it's continuing to function to solve all of our problems um, so now, I guess I suppose i don 't think it 's entirely free now,
0: because yeah. it seems to me that there are there 's a small percentage of folks who are really making bank mm-hmm. right now, and everybody else is not. Are the people who are currently really profiting from this crisis are those the folks who the free market is usually benefiting, or is this an anomaly?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, income inequality has been a huge issue in the US and growing substantially. And I do think it's a result of our neoliberal policies. I mean, you can look at the statistics on the income gap uh, from, you know, the Reagan years till now. And and I think there's definitely um, a correlation between those two things, for sure. Um, So yeah, I guess I don't tend to think of it in terms of free market or not, but I guess rather neoliberal governance specifically um you know i tend to focus a little bit more on that aspect of things in in my research um but yeah i mean absolutely there's a connection (laughs) between the two yeah and we're seeing as you said we're seeing it play out in the pandemic as well um including you know even instances of you know government ethic violations right where we're looking at senators you know who are literally trying to profit off of the pandemic uh, with some questionable stock sales that people are talking about. Um, So yeah I mean absolutely I think that's a representation of a larger problem. Is
0: there anything else you want to talk about?
1: Yeah I guess I I wanted to touch a little bit on I've been thinking in the past few days uh, since I actually wrote the the piece. um, I talked a little bit in the piece about you know how the media representation and and kind of how we're viewing you know, these ordinary heroes, which is, you know, again, civil society has stepped up appreciably and, and it is, it is nice. I mean, it is good to see ordinary human beings going out of their way to help others, feeling a sense of social responsibility, filling in that gap. Um, you know, my piece was intended to kind of just draw attention to the fact that we cannot let the rhetoric run away with this idea of ordinary heroes to support the notion that civil society is, is an appropriate alternative to responsive governance. So while we have kind of stepped up and become these ordinary heroes, uh, we've done it because we have to. Um, and it's not necessarily something that we want to romanticize uh, because that allows abdication of government responsibility. And I've been thinking in the few days since I uh, wrote the piece, Also too about how we're starting to see tales of ordinary villains on the flip Mm -hmm. side of that. Uh, So I was, I think just the other day was, uh, came across an article kind of demonizing a hairdresser who had some coronavirus symptoms, went to work and got a hundred people sick. And so to me, it's like, we also need to be a little careful about how we're letting the rhetoric put the responsibility on individuals here. Because I think if I were in that hairdresser situation and I was, basically forced to open my doors before I was ready to, I could easily see feeling a few symptoms of illness and trying to rationalize that away because otherwise, how do I make any money? You know, I mean, and I don't think, I actually think most people in that position might have gone to work anyway. Um, And so for the focus to be on, you know, all these terrible people who are, you know, knowingly infecting everyone else again it just obscures the more complex reality and the reality of the fact that you know she was making a difficult choice and i'm sure that her intentions were not necessarily malevolent um so aside from warning of romanticizing ordinary heroes i would say we need to be a little bit careful about the ordinary villain side of the equation as well um and and i am seeing more and more of those narratives um and i think again that that just is in danger of of kind of obscuring the larger problems.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting how the hand of the government is so invisible to us. It's like we're choosing, it it seems like we're actively choosing not to see it. Because obviously the choices that we're left with are, are a direct result of the choices that are created for us or that exist. And we have the resources. You've seen California do it, you've seen New York do it. We have the resources and the ability to take... Measures so that cases will
1: decrease, but yeah, I mean nobody's mad at Governor Kemp in this scenario. I mean, you know in a larger scale, they are, but if you read the article about the terrible hairdresser it 's like you know there's nothing in there about like you know how dare the government force her to return to work or, or anything like that you're right it is It is almost like a willful blindness in some respects, um, because I think that is just so deeply ingrained in our culture, you know this idea that you know, it's ultimately not government responsibility, that it's, you know, individual responsibility, individual choice, individual freedom um, is so ingrained that we can't, we can't necessarily think of it in other terms a lot of times.
0: Right. It's that autonomy myth.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) exactly. And that is the useful, you know, one of the many, many usefulness, uh, aspects of usefulness of vulnerability theory, right? Just calling attention to the state as being kind of the primary vehicle for providing a lot of the things that, that we're putting on to individuals or that we're putting on to the market um, and recognizing the appropriate allocation of responsibility. And I think, you know, that is no more salient than now <laughs> uh, when we're seeing kind of the effects of, of thinking of this as not government responsibility and, and how that's kind of played out in the pandemic.
0: Um, so you framed your op-ed using Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone. Um, what do you see as the relevance of that article today?
1: Yeah, so I do think, you know, the study was, is 25 years old. Um, and I think they did have done some follow-ups since then. Um, and of course, this was before social media and the internet changed a lot of how we view civic engagement. So in some senses, you know, the notion of actual in-person voluntary group of participation as as a reflection of civic engagement is, is you know not as current as it could be um, but there's still I think a lot of relevance you know just again in the notion of what it teaches us about the relationship between civil society and government um, and when we teach bowling alone um, we tend to follow it up with another essay that was released by um, another sociology professor uh, Theda Skakal And it was done, I think, a year or two later, and it was kind of looking at how this idea of civil society and civic engagement as a response to government was starting to take on more uh, salience amongst liberals as well um, and kind of cautioning against this idea that we adopt these sort of romantic Tocquevillian notions of civil society Uh, as an alternative to governance. And one of the interesting things that we teach about that essay that she explores quite a bit, this idea that you can't really think of civil society as apart from government, because a lot of these large organizations, I think the PTA is an example of this, um, were actually formed. They were either modeled off of governance structures or they were formed with the help of government. There's essentially a lot of historical data that she explores that shows that, these civic organizations, you know, are very much tied into government and can't necessarily be thought of as this alternative to governance. Um, And she makes a particularly salient point that, you know, as we've seen the kind of decline in civic engagement, at least then, um, you know, one interesting theory about why there were less people, you know, bowling in leagues or participating in PTA is because, uh, they were finding professional connections elsewhere. So what you might be seeing are actually some of the more privileged people who were kind of leaving these voluntary associations and you know doing less civic engagement and maybe maybe just kind of throwing money at the problem at the very most, uh, but not participating as much and you know really lamenting the fact that you know you cannot leave the people who get left behind in these the less privileged people who get left behind. In these voluntary associations, you cannot turn around and expect them to solve all of society's problems with no help from either the government or the more privileged people who abandon them. Um, and I think that that's still, even after all these years, still a very salient point. I mean, again, you know in-person participation in voluntary organizations may seem a bit outdated in, in this, you know, social media world. Uh, but I think that the principles in both Putnam and uh, Professor Skopkol's pieces are, are still very true today. You know, this idea that not only do we need to criticize this, this notion of civil society as an alternative to governance, but we also need to criticize the notion of who exactly we're expecting to comprise civil society and how we are expecting them to band together to solve problems like in the pandemic um, without the help and support of government or of um, those who maybe are the most privileged and are you know making money off of uh, these crises, as you mentioned earlier.
0: How are civil society and the government different and the same?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, Well, I guess at the end of the day, you might think that their goals would be hopefully similar, um, at least, you know, ideally, um, you know, that it's essentially both exist in ways to provide resilience. Um, I think when you look at community level civil society banding together and, and again and the pandemic is a good example of that. You know, we're doing things like trying to raise money for people who are affected by the pandemic or sewing masks or, you know, again, I think the primary goal in both cases is, you know, the achievement of resilience and um, of equality in, in provision, certainly um, I think is a large goal of that as well, at least civil society and should be of government also. So I think you know, when you get down to it, it's it's simply a matter of resources <laughs> to some extent, uh, which I think I touched on earlier, the idea that you know, expecting organization from the bottom up with limited resources is problematic uh, if you're putting the responsibility for providing resilience on civil society alone. Um, but I do think that there's there's a complementary role to be had, um, certainly. I mean, I think you know, perhaps, the ideal notion or the ideal division between civil society and government might be civil society as, you know, a way to petition the government or make needs known. So, you know, there is still very much a social activist role um, to, to put The government in touch with what the needs of the people are, um, particularly like on a community grassroots basis type thing. So, you know, needs can be different amongst different communities, obviously, um, and I think there's still a large role to play there. Um, And of course, you know, there's a large role for civil society to play in terms of monitoring uh, the government and ensuring that it is responsive and it is responsive. uh, In an egalitarian manner and in a just manner. Um, I think that's a large Uh, responsibility or should be a large responsibility of civil society if you're thinking about the division of labor between the two um, as kind of a government watchdog in a sense so you know i've talked before about being careful to conflate the idea of you know government in its execution as being problematic so you know There is corruption. Um, There are problems within the government Um, and being careful not to conflate that with just complete distrust of governance in general. So I think a lot of times, and Putnam's study touched on this, I think a bit too, um, distrust in government because of specific instances of corruption kind of lead towards this just wholesale rejection of governance um, and this idea that the people would be better at a grassroots level to organize and solve their own problems because obviously the government is ineffective and we can't get it done. So I think an ideal division of labor recognizes that, of course, there are problems within the government. Of course, you know, the government is susceptible to corruption. um, And we do need to play a watchdog role and a participatory role by voting. Obviously, Um, civic engagement is incredibly important, um, but it doesn't have to be an alternative to government and I think that's kind of the main point to take away. Thank
0: you. Anything else you want to talk about? Uh, now I think I'm good. <laughs> I mean, I'm like thinking a little bit more now about whether there should even be a distinction between civil society and government because isn't the government supposed to be comprised of elected officials? Like I guess the main difference is that government officials are elected and like civil society leaders are sometimes, but not always elected.
1: I mean, I, I guess I, I guess it depends on what, I mean, civil society is a complex, <laughs> I, I guess it depends on how you define it. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Like some leadership roles, like in, like in the PTA, those leadership roles are right. usually like elected or like you vote on those. Right. Right. In other situations, like the, the woman who's organizing all of the mask donations here in Atlanta just like stepped up and decided to do that and has been really good at organizing that and providing leadership. Yeah. Um, but, you know, she is responding to a real need, but it, it's just, I guess I'm having a difficult time understanding what civil society provides that the government doesn't, or rather what civil society provides that the government shouldn't Mm-hmm. provide, because isn't the government supposed to be like an extension of the people?
1: It is, yeah. It's no, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying. I mean, I can see, you know, I, that there is nuance there for sure. Um, and I don't know, I don't entirely know the answer to that either. I mean, it's a fuzzy line, I think, between civil society and government, exactly like what you said, because the government is supposed to represent the people. And we don't necessarily want to think of ourselves as entirely apart from the government, And I think the way that I talk about it, oftentimes it lends itself to that interpretation. I have to be careful about that, I think, because um, you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, the government is us. We are the government in a sense, right? Um, And yeah, so from that perspective, I don't, it it is a difficult question. I mean, I think, like I said, for me, it predominantly comes down to resources, honestly. You know, just like (laughs) they have all the money, (laughs) you know, I don't, I mean, I think that, you know, it's, obviously more complicated than that but i guess if i had to pick like a dividing line i mean that's partially partially what it is partially i think we just need strong central leadership to some extent um but there's also a place for the grassroots you know organizations and there's a lot to be said for the idea that local governance you know they oftentimes know the needs of their own community the best and you know there is and that that kind of tends to get lumped in with the idea of civil society right that you know even this kind of anti-federal government sentiment where it's like the the more local the better in terms of governance Mm -hmm. and and I mean there is obviously some truth to that and, and some utility to to thinking about it that way also um but yeah getting into the whole local versus federal government debate is <laughs> is probably more than we want to do right now I did think I mean I did mention federalism but a little bit but yeah so yeah all that to say I don't know I mean I, like I said I think there's a strong case for civil society and civic engagement if for no other reason than to ensure the government is doing its job um, mm-hmm. to me that's the strongest dividing line like ensuring that the government is functioning the way it's supposed to, and that it is representing the will of the people because it is obviously the individuals who comprise the government are clearly very prone to corruption. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a constant danger, right? So I do think civil society has an active role both in letting the government know when it's messing up and also letting them know what the needs of the people are, because yes, they're supposed to represent us, but the individuals that do are often or can be out of touch Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there is a division there, but yeah, I guess from a purely theoretical standpoint, I can definitely see what you're saying. I think government is us. We are government it, in a way, you know, because of the fact that it's majoritarian elections. I don't know. I guess I'm thinking of <laughs> it more from how it actually plays out in practice. than yeah.
0: Um, I have a friend who feels that way about nonprofits. Like she thinks that nonprofits shouldn't exist because it should all come under government. Mm-hmm. You know, because she's like, "Well, that's the government's job. It shouldn't be the job of a nonprofit to provide services hmm. to like indigent communities or to like survivors of abuse, whatever." She's like, "That should be the government's job. There shouldn't be nonprofits."
1: That's interesting. I mean, I could see. I definitely, again, I guess for me, it comes to funding more than anything else. I don't entirely disagree with that. I wouldn't say I would like say no nonprofits across the board ever, you know, but um, I, I can see, and that again is, is another complex, like the nonprofit thing is a whole other like complex addition to it, right? Because you can see government and nonprofits like working together. And in some sense, I think there's There's value in that because the people a lot of times people who staff nonprofits have more expertise than whoever the government is appointing. So I think you can say government responsibility. um, But still have, you know, not necessarily have it be a government feature, but I actually I do think maybe a lot of the services provided by nonprofits should be provided by the government. Um, But again, not necessarily the ones that are watchdogs. You know, mm-hmm. I guess to me, like, that's the, that's the obvious distinction, but I can definitely see that argument.
0: And the other um, thing about nonprofits is that their leadership is not elected. hmm You know, like, they are not really accountable to anybody except for their board. But it, okay, I was going to say, their boards are, small, I guess, and small, <laughs> usually the directors just staff the board with their friends who are, like, not going to say anything against them ever. So it's kind of
1: yeah no I mean that's that's a fair point the accountability I again if things were functioning ideally you would think like there's a case to be had from an accountability perspective towards actually making the government you know in charge of of providing whatever those services are you know in a lot of those cases because presumably they would have more accountability um although I guess again but then government regulates nonprofits via rules and could to some extent, dictate certain and do, I guess, dictate some measures of accountability within, you know, if you want to be like a 501c3 tax exempt status, you have to do XYZ. Right. So, so, I mean, there is government participation just by nature of regulation of the nonprofits, which I guess is government
0: funding too.
1: Right. In a lot of cases. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So I don't, you know, again, it's just that question of like, what, what exactly would be gained from, you know, them not being, not in being in existence or being allowed to operate at that point. Which sounds scary, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But I don't know why other than this like inherent sort of distrust of government that I have.
1: Right. And that's, I guess that was kind of the point that I was trying to make, right. Is that like everyone and that, that Putnam was making too, to some extent, like, you know, distrust, he was basically saying that distrust in government is playing a role in why people are participating less and less like they're just dropping out you know because they're just like I give up (laughs) I'm not going to be civically engaged I distrust I don't care anymore I'm just going to go bowling alone right so yeah but again I understand it's very hard to reconcile like but sometimes when my husband and I are when I'm kicking things around about vulnerability theory I do have to be like okay we're kind of thinking utopian here because he gets back into the practical as well I'm like I know it doesn't function this way right now but this is what, how we want it to and you know we're best we're never going to move forward if we can't think of it in in ideal terms and hope we can get it all. <laughs> yeah,
0: I've been reading a little bit recently about how our political imagination has been very limited mm. almost to the point of like non-existence like it's become so narrow that we're it's very difficult for us to imagine new ways of government governance or alternative ways of being existing in relation to one another
1: that's interesting i like that i hadn't heard the term political imagination before but yeah that's that's really interesting so maybe it's a lack of political imagination (laughs) is part of the problem i don't know i mean it is hard to imagine from a practical sense, getting to the point that we want to be. But one thing I want to make sure like really comes through is just, you know, this notion that civic engagement is highly important, you know, that it is the role and should be the role of civil society to ensure that we have a responsive government. You know, we do have an obligation to ensure that, um, you know, if we don't do it, who will. So from that sense, you know, maybe we're not supposed to be necessarily be the ones who are sewing masks and, you know, raising money, uh, for the local, what have you. (laughs) Um, but we definitely should be calling out the lack of government response. Like that is a hundred percent, you know, our duty as citizens to ensure, you know, a responsive and functioning state.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Jennifer. This has been an episode of Voices in Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.